0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtutors for more information. When you join the patron family, you'll instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to take part in a member-only book club. They can also enter patron-only monthly giveaways to name but a few of the perks. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to be joined by Amina Wright, Senior Curator at the Faith Museum and Sutherland Forsyth, Associate Director of Heritage and Engagement at the Auckland Project. We're going to be chatting about a stunning Tudor tapestry commissioned by Henry VIII in 1535. Let's dive straight in. Hello everyone, welcome back to another installment of Talking Tudors. I'm delighted to be joined by two guests today, so I'm going to get you to do a little bit of an introduction. So maybe can we start with you Amina?
1: Yes, hello, good morning. I'm Amina Wright and I'm the Senior Curator for the Faith Museum in Bishop Auckland. Wonderful, and Sutherland, do you want to say hello? Hello.
2: I'm Sullivan Forsyth and I'm the Associate Director for Heritage and Engagement here at the Auckland Project, which cares for, among other things, Auckland Castle, which is the historic home of the Bishops of Durham, as well as many other galleries and the Faith Museum. So it's amazing to have so many fantastic heritage sites all in one place.
0: We are here to actually talk about a very exciting campaign that you have going at the moment. So do you want to tell us a little bit about this and the importance of this particular campaign?
2: Well, right now we're trying to save one of the greatest treasures of the Tudor age. It is regarded as one of the finest Tudor artworks to have come on the market in a generation. And it is a vast tapestry that belonged to Henry VIII, that was thought to have been completely lost for hundreds of years, has been rediscovered, and we now have just weeks left to save it for the nation. And if we do, it's going to be going on display in the Faith Museum at Auckland Castle so that people can enjoy it for hundreds of years into the future. And so it's a really big campaign and we just want to help as many people know about it as possible because this is an object that quite simply is something astonishing.
0: Well, that sounds like something my listeners would definitely love to know about. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about what this tapestry looks like and its significance as well? What does it look
1: like? Well, first of all, it's huge and it is woven unlike some tapestries which are just woven using perhaps just wool. So you might think of something a bit sort of brown and furry. This has been woven with an extremely generous amount of gold and silver. And those metal threads are still in very, very good condition, exceptionally good condition, which means that it sparkles. So I think that's the impression that you will get is is of colour and shine and sparkle and of the size of it as well so it's about 3 meters high it's a it's a huge thing and wide in proportion to that. So I I think you'll be overwhelmed by the size and also by the drama of what's going on in the scene. If you imagine a sort of high Renaissance drama going on, it's got all the elements that you would expect of that. Designed in Flanders by Peter Kirke van Elst, who is picking up the high Renaissance style from Italy. He's making it his own. He's bringing it to Northern Europe. And so you get this very dramatic scene against a backdrop of very elegant classical architecture. And uh, that's one of the fun features of this is, is the contrast between this very elegant upright architecture and all these very dramatic things that are going on with fire and death and destruction and a lot of hope and joy as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the the sort of sparkle effect. I remember Hampton Court Palace did something once where they shone a light on their beautiful tapestries in the Great Hall to show what they would have looked like when they were first actually made. And it was so impressive. You know, you can just imagine visitors arriving at the palace and being just kind of blown away by these incredible pieces of art. And they're very expensive, aren't they? They were very expensive to make, I mean.
2: At the time of Henry VIII's death, this was listed in the royal wardrobe as one of the top ten most expensive items um, that Henry VIII had, and it was valued at around just over £3,000 at the time. And this scene was so important, it showed St. Paul directing the burning of the heathen books, and that's what we're seeing in this scene. And where Amina is describing this sort of dramatic vision that we see before us of flames and of buildings and of dozens of people, it's people gathering around the burning of books, and it's depicting a scene from the Bible. And for Henry VIII, he specially commissioned this tapestry. He wanted this scene because it not only had resonance for him, having just become supreme head of the Church of England, but also it was very topical in many ways with a lot of things that were happening in England at the time, during the Reformation, particularly with the burning of books and, of course, later people as well. And we'll probably touch on that in a moment. But this scene that we're seeing in the tapestry 18 feet wide and um, you know what's incredible about it is for us today it would be like having a billboard size plasma screen on the wall that's what this was like and the designer designed this in a way that was so dynamic it looks as if the books that are being burnt are tumbling out of the tapestry itself I love to think that people in the 16th century would have been walking past this and almost you'd have felt like you wanted to sort of walk back because you'd think that these things are coming out and I love to imagine Imagine if you'd walked into the great hall or the great watching chamber at Hampton Court in 1539, when this would have been on display at Hampton Court in one of Henry VIII's apartments, that you would have seen sort of bits of smoke coming up from candles or the fires, and it would have almost felt like you were in an immersive scene. And that is what is incredible about this. It's the dynamism, it's the movement, it's as Amina was saying, the colours, the richness of the silks and the wools, the gold and silver thread. Really, it is one of the great tapestries of the Tudor era. And we are just incredibly excited at the prospect that we could save this for the nation and then people can come and actually see it for themselves and discover its story.
0: Well, that would be wonderful. I do love how lively they are. There is something quite magical about those incredible tapestries. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the historical context that you touched on there in which it was commissioned
2: and made. For Henry VIII, this was commissioned around 1535, so just after he had become Supreme Head of the Church of England, and for him, as we know, art. Was a status symbol, and it was also a way of getting across messages. And this is not only an artistic achievement, it's a political statement and a religious statement as well. It's about him demonstrating to people that he was God's representative on earth. It's about sending the message to people that the Pope may look to St. Peter, but in England, they'll maybe look to St. Paul instead. But also, it's about this scene. And Henry VIII personally wanted this scene to be included in the series of The Life of St. Paul tapestries. The designer, Peter Koch Van Alst, had designed this series for other monarchs. We know that Francis I of France had a series of seven of these Life of St. Paul tapestries. But of course, Henry being Henry, he thought, well, if he's got seven, I'll have nine. And so he asked for an extra two to be made. One, the stoning of St. Stephen, and the other, this one of St. Paul directing the burning of the heathen books. And so he particularly wanted this scene and it had that contemporary significance as well amina you might want to touch on what we're sort of seeing in the scene its significance in as a bible story but also as its contemporary relevance then and indeed now
1: What we've got, although the the title is, you know, you you can condense the title to make it shorter or you can extend it to make it longer, but St. Paul overseeing the burning of the heathen books. This is an episode from the Acts of the Apostles when Paul was in Ephesus and Kirker, the designer, has had a a lovely time making up these fantasy buildings to create his city of, of Ephesus. He was actually an architectural theorist, so he translated the very important De Architectura by Vitruvius and also Celio's book on, on architecture. So he's very influential in bringing classical architectural theory to Northern Europe. Um, and you you can see it's almost like a classical architecture Lego set that he has set up in the, in the background of this scene. And that's your backdrop, this city of Ephesus, to various episodes going on from the Acts of the Apostles. So we have got this very strange story really about people who were in a bit of a model spiritually and supernaturally and they had a, a very frightening experience with a supernatural occurrence that it kind of freaked them out. They realized that they were messing with something that was dangerous. and all of the people in this group who were practicing sorcery. uh, There are various translations that use this, you know, they talk about uh, the the hidden arts or the the dark arts or sorcery. It's a word in the original Greek New Testament that means something relating to sort of sticking your nose, being curious in, in places where you shouldn't go. And they bring their books that are full of magic and spells. And they make a big pile of them. You can see they place them on a a pile of straw and they're setting light to them. And the smoke that rises up from that has been very beautifully depicted using this shimmering silver. So you see that the shimmery smoke, you can look through it and see details of the architecture behind. Um, And they're coming with baskets full of these very valuable books because it says in the Acts of the Apostles that these were worth many pieces of silver. William Tyndale's translation, he doesn't use the word silver coins, he says silverlings, which I think is a a delightful word. Many silverlings worth of, of books. So that's the principal story that's going on here. And of course, that's very, very significant to Henry because this is the time when he's issuing a whole series of proclamations against heretical books, against a particular person's publications, even against people, you know, writing things against him. He's almost trying to control how people think. And then that becomes something that's actually very relevant for us today because although you might look at a picture of people burning books and think, oh, that's something that used to happen in, in the old days or something that happened in history, it's still going on. And these questions about controlling words that people publish, even controlling people's thoughts, you know, we are seeing a resurgence of that around the world. And so it's a story that, you know, it wasn't, wasn't just relevant 2000 years ago, it wasn't just relevant in Henry's time, but it's something that we can be thinking about today. And that's the, the main story that's depicted in the tapestry. But, but as I said, there are other things going on as well. And we've only just begun to explore those.
0: And so you mentioned that this was part of a series originally when it was commissioned. Do other tapestry survived from that particular series?
1: This is the only one that we know of from that series. But Henry wasn't the only person to own a set. So there are other sets, the one that belonged to the King of France, one that belonged to Mary of Hungary. So various big patrons and collectors had the set of seven, but only Henry had the set of 9. And I'll let Sutherland say a few things about the the other cheaper version.
2: Yes, I mean, this is one of the things that is so interesting. Henry liked this series so much that he actually had a whole second set of it produced. And he had that produced in the mid 1540s. But he decided he'd go a bit on the cheap on this one. He decided he wouldn't worry about the gold and silver thread, just have it in the wool and the silk And as a result, it means that there are some of those that have survived, or we believe they've survived in different collections. What's notable about them is that the colours seem very bright. And it's because in the original ones, which included the gold and silver, the colour palette was much more subtle. And that was in order to enable the gold and silver thread to really stand out and dazzle. And so this tapestry that has survived is incredible work of art and it is astonishing that it has survived when all other eight of the series of nine have disappeared and it's one of the great mysteries about this tapestry is quite what happened to them because it was last recorded In the Royal Collection in 1770. And we believe it left the Royal Collection in the early um, 19th century. After that, the story goes cold for about 200 years until it reappeared on the market, was sold, and went to Spain without people realizing that this was Henry VIII's lost tapestry. It was just lovely old tapestry that someone's bought. And it was only a decade ago that it was actually identified as this missing tapestry. Um, Thomas Campbell, who is the sort of world expert on, on Tudor tapestries, has described this as the holy grail of Tudor tapestry, to actually have been able to rediscover this. And where we are so excited is that this tapestry is up for sale. But because it is in Spain, there's been an export ban on it. And as a result, the Spanish government have incredibly generously said, Look, if a suitable British institution can be found that can show it has the right credentials, the right historical links, the right context, the right environment to display it, they will look to lift that export ban, which is practically unheard of. But they have very generously recognised that this has so much importance to British history and. The Auckland Project here in Bishop Auckland and County Durham, we are the last organisation that is left trying to fight to save this tapestry, bring it back to Britain and put it on display. And within the context of Auckland Castle and the Faith Museum, there actually couldn't be a more relevant place for it to go right now.
0: So that's what I was going to ask you. If if you manage, and we hope you manage to, to bring this back to the UK, where will it be displayed in England exactly for people to go and see?
2: So Bishop Auckland is a small town in the north of England in County Durham, and within it sits the Bishop of Durham's palace, Auckland Castle. Now, this palace is a beautiful building, but it has a 900 year history. And so it has evolved over time from literally having parts which were fortified to beautiful rooms, wonderful artworks, a throne room, one of the largest private chapels in Europe, Tudor kitchens. It's an incredible building and this mixture of all different architectural styles across the centuries. And the bishops of Durham used to be referred to as the Prince Bishops of Durham because they had unique powers in England. They were literally the most powerful people in England other than the king himself. They had authority over taxation within County Durham. They also could raise an army. They could set their own laws. Justice was dispensed in the name of the bishop rather than the king. And so they had huge powers, hugely influential, and were often among the chief advisors to different Different monarchs. And that continued into the Tudor era. You know, among the sort of famous prince bishops were people like Richard Fox. Richard Fox, of course, would um be one of the key people who negotiated the marriage between Margaret Tudor and James IV of Scots. You then have people like um Thomas Woolsey, who Took all the money from being Prince Bishop of Durham, but he didn't actually come and do anything up here, unfortunately. But certainly enjoyed creating beautiful palaces and homes and doing lots of other things. And then you have people like Cuthbert Tunstall. And Cuthbert Tunstall has a particular connection with this tapestry because, as Amina was mentioning, the burning of books during Henry VIII's reign, one of the most famous incidents of this was The burning of the Tyndale New Testament and Cuthbert Tunstall when he was Bishop of London oversaw the burning of the Tyndale Bible and he then became shortly afterwards Prince Bishop of Durham and came and lived here at Auckland Castle and so we have this remarkable context which brings in history spanning hundreds of years But what makes it so relevant for the tapestry is that just in the last year, we've opened a brand new museum which explores 6,000 years of faith in Britain. It's a whole new wing added onto the side of the castle, and Amina has been the um, senior curator in the development of that museum. Wonderful, and I'd love to to hear
0: a little bit more, yes, about the museum and and perhaps about some other important artefacts that the public may be able to see there.
1: The museum is it's a kind of a museum of two halves because it's two buildings. The first part of the, the museum that you'll visit, it's actually a Tudor long gallery, essentially. So if you imagine yourself walking through a long, narrow corridor, and that would be the beginning of vis- visitors' journey through the 6,000 years of faith. We're looking at the history of Britain through the lens of faith. And in the centre of that history, you get this pivotal event that is so disruptive of the Reformation. And we tell the Reformation story very much through objects that have come down to us from that period. And the objects do actually include a copy of William Tyndale's Bible, which is a a very rare thing now. And uh, we have an edition that was probably printed the same year that Tyndale was strangled and burnt at the stake near Antwerp. So same part of the world where the tapestry was made while the tapestry was being made in Brussels. We also have a small, round, miniature portrait of Thomas More, who was instrumental in getting those books burnt. And uh, it's a portrait of Thomas More, who had been executed the year before, 1535. And while he was in the Tower of London for about a year, he didn't have any shaving things. He had he had nothing he had a bit of food, grew this incredibly long beard. So it's a portrait of him with his beard holding a crucifix. Those are the sort of objects that we display. We've got portraits of of Henry VIII. We have on loan from the British Museum that very famous medal that he had struck to commemorate his status as defender of the faith. That medal was made in 1524. Some years later into the 1540s, he has another medal struck which commemorates him as supreme head of the Church of England, and you see two very different Henrys there. One, the 1540s one has put on a lot of weight as well, so straight away you can recognize that that's a later one. One of the most exceptional objects that we have is another textile, but it's a slightly earlier textile from the late 1400s, and uh, that is a group of vestments associated with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Morton. Who was Moore's mentor? And they've been cut up. They've been salvaged, really, pieces of of blue velvet vestments from the fifteenth century, and they've been salvaged and put back together after the Reformation by a family that wanted to keep these remnants of the church before the Reformation, before this huge change came about through Henry VIII and his successors.
0: It certainly does sound like it's the perfect place and home for this tapestry. So I'm sure that our listeners are wondering what they can do to help bring this back to England. So what do you suggest they do if they want to find out more and they want to help?
2: Well, we've set up a just giving page where we're trying to raise a million pounds that'll go towards the total cost of the tapestry. The tapestry is going to cost in total about 4.2 million pounds. And we are incredibly close to reaching that million pound target. And if people want to donate, whether it's as small as one penny or one dollar or one pound, every little bit helps to save this treasure we've had over a thousand donors to the campaign which has been incredible and we have a just giving page justgiving.com campaign slash tapestry and if people want they can go there they can find out more about it they can hear about where it's actually going to go in the faith museum which is going to be in this vast new wing that's just been built and The room itself has a high vaulted ceiling and it's very reminiscent of a sort of great hall in many ways, but in a contemporary style. And so you can find out about where it will go, a bit more about its history, but also you can help contribute to the campaign. And we're hopeful that if we manage to secure the funding for this tapestry, that we'll be able to see it coming to Bishop Auckland, to the Faith Museum at Auckland Castle, all going well later this year. So if people are able to support we would love it. But equally, if people can't support financially, if people can share the story on social media, share our videos, share images, spread the word, that is just as valuable because we want more people not only to hear about the campaign to save it, but hopefully, if we get it, to then come and see this amazing Tudor treasure back in Britain for the first time For a long, long time.
0: Oh, it does sound very exciting. I am definitely going to to go and have a look at how I can help and I encourage everyone to do the same. And exactly just sharing on social media is a wonderful way to assist to get this treasure back. And I'll be in England later in the year, so I'm going to keep everything crossed and maybe I can come up and see it when it's when it's displayed. But thank you both so much for taking the time to talk tutors with me and for telling us all about this real Tudor treasure.
2: Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Since this episode was recorded, a wave of generosity has taken the campaign over its initial £1 million target. However, supporters are still encouraged to donate to support the tapestry's conservation, as textile works are particularly fragile and in need of care. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail, and on Instagram as the Most Happy Seventy-Eight. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.